welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Delling Pod. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but I really am. I mean, number one, she's a girl. And we don't get many girls on the show. I mean, it is kind of, it's kind of sexist. I mean, not deliberately, but it is. Um, and secondly, she is a kind of, you're, you're an emissary from, from my childhood, Mads. You are. Because we've got, we've got these connections, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Um, so I believe that you were friends with my, my, my older brother, Rupert, back in the day. And, uh, and Camilla. And Camilla, yeah, of course. My sister. Yeah, because they're, they're my half yeah, siblings. Exactly. They're a little older than me. Yeah. Um, we all get on brilliantly. Um, and I've actually, my brother once showed me a photo of you and he, I think when they're, you're both teenagers in Devon. And I think it was taken yeah. by one day Cameron, if I've got that right. This is what I was told. Do you know what? That might well be the day. There, there is that photograph of me and Dave Cameron and a few others by the, um, at Bantham, at the, um, you, you can recognise the wall. What, what's yeah. the, is it the, the sloop? The sloop. Is that the pub at Bantham? Yeah, it's yeah. still there. Best pub, I just love it there. Because they still live there, so I go visit them a lot. Bantham, I think, is my favourite well, it's the place, one of the places I like, when I'm down in Salkham, because my uncle's got a place then, you know, you know, your, my uncle knows your dad plays yeah. golf with him. So it's a, it's a very small world, isn't it? It's so bloody middle um, class. <laughs> yeah, no, well, no, I tell you, Matt, I mean, you're, you're quite young, aren't you? You're, how old are you? 27. Child, yeah, child. What you'll realise when you get older is that the world gets smaller and smaller and everyone knows everybody else. Like, for example, I was thinking about this just now. I go riding when, I, when my arm isn't, isn't wrecked as it is at the moment. But I go riding. And the other day, I went riding with Max Hastings' grandchildren and with his, with his ex-wife. You know, it's, it, it, he was my editor. It, yeah. So you can, you can imagine this, this, this future where you, where you connect socially with people or, or where you're your university contemporaries are now kind of prime minister and um or in the cabinet so it's it's weird it yeah. really is this does it does actually happen and and, and you're sort of take it for granted is that enjoyable when the world contracts like that or is it is it just a bit odd or is it fun i don't know i mean i'm a bit worried of the country if my university contemporaries become prime minister but <laughs> it it's interesting. Um, it's useful from a kind of journalistic perspective because you get a handle on. It's also kind of. Um, it's like the bit in the Wizard of Oz where the the, the curtain is pulled away and you see the the levers and you realise that actually uh, the world is not as sophisticated and wonderful as you thought it was because if crap ish people like your contemporaries from university are now running the country you think hang on a second this yeah. isn't right these people are just ordinary yeah. you know they're not because i think when you're younger you imagine that imagine that politicians and stuff are going to be like cleverer than us yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's always the way actually when you start working a job um you, you see people who think are probably a bit crap doing really well and that actually gives you a great deal of confidence because you're like, if so-and-so who's, um, you know, full of shit is, is essentially uh, earning a lot more than me, then, you know, I could do what they do sort of thing. 
and actually being on the inside of it, you see the whole, as, as you said, the Wizard of Oz thing, the whole, the, how the whole workings um, are. And it's, yeah. I, I actually, you're, well, you're, you're an interesting case. I think you are one of my, when you get to get to be an older journalist, you look at the younger generation of up and coming journalists and you think you bastards, I hate you, you horrible little, 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 um, you know, Aravist, no talents. I don't look at you that way. I, I, I really love your stuff. I think you wrote brilliantly, um, eruditely. Um, you're absolutely bang on politically. I, I love all that. Um, why am I telling you this? Um, yes. I'm telling you this because actually another thing you're going to find in life, and this is one of the, sorry, I'm sounding like, you know, your dad um, giving you life lessons, but, but I may as well. Um, well, like your big brother, actually. That's what I am. I'm like, I'm like Rupert. Um, the other thing you find is that the people who do well are not necessarily the most talented. They're the ones who put in the most effort, who are the most ruthless who are the most brown nosing? Who um, are? I mean, you, 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 look around you. You've seen this already. Yeah, I know. I Matt do, I Hancock. Do. Look, look at Matt Hancock. That man has no talent at all, and yet look where he is. I mean, he's almost r- running the country. And, and and I mean, so many of our problems. Um, the fact that the schools haven't reopened yet, and this is what happens when you appoint someone like Gavin Williamson with no particular skills in that area, but clearly owes him a debt of service or perhaps he knows where the bodies are buried and it's we the people that get lumbered with the the mess of that that's certainly true that they are the sort of the bannermen aren't they of of whoever is is the king of the north or or whatever powerful position they've got and and they're given their jobs for loyalty dogged loyalty rather than rather than talent but haven't you found the last months that that you know you were saying about the, the brown nosing and all of that i mean i've i kind of increasingly i see that to be true with people that i've dealt with um and then going on to different positions and so on that found that i mean it's totally confirmed for me why i feel as i would say i'm a libertarian or a classic liberal and because i think that the, fundamentally the uh incentives in politics are so bad and there is such there is such an incentive for ass covering face covering and um rewarding your chums and basically everything that's going to short-termism uh sunk cost fallacy where you just keep going with a bad decision because turning around is too difficult there's basically every reason for the outcome to be terrible and i you know if anything good comes out of this i hope it will be that more people start to think that the political process is sort of fundamentally flawed and we should perhaps be trying to check its wings a little bit yes i agree that would be that would be the hope but i think look look around you again and you see um that I don't think lessons are being learned from this grotesque mishandling of... The, I mean, this has got to be the biggest act of folly ever committed by any government, plural, in peacetime. I can't imagine that, that, that any time in history, for whatever reason, countries have sacrificed their economies and, and also sacrificed the lives of healthy people for... Or, or, no, I mean, I'm talking about people with heart attacks, people with cancer, things like that. For, for for no reason. I mean, other than a kind of superstitious. Yeah, I mean, I I I sort of initially I really felt for the politicians because I think they were in a really difficult position. They were having to make these massive, drastic life and death calculations, and they were being being given data that we now know to be suspect, but at the time was absolutely terrifying. Um, and in those circumstances, I'm sure that I might well have done what our politicians did. 
the thing that worries me is the fact that they will not come down from that position. As I said before about the sunk cost fallacy, uh, when you've extinguished enough political capital in a certain direction, uh, it's really difficult for them to, sometimes a U-turn is the best approach, but I feel I fear is that as if so many people are now invested in this particular outcome, that it will be very difficult for us to um, continue, to make the, the right choices um, going forward. And I think that will have a hugely harmful, destructive impact on this country. Well, of course, the problem, one of the problems there is that I'd say, what, 95%, maybe 98.9% of the people in the country wouldn't know what the sunk cost fallacy was if it bit them on the arse. And we, you and I have noticed this talking about another of our particular bet noir, HS2. Uh, yes. and, and it's amazing how many people do not get that just because you've spunked 100 billion or whatever up against the wall yeah. to no purpose whatsoever, that is not an argument for spunking another 100 billion I, up against I the wall. People, I think you can call it the sunk cost fallacy or you can call it simply um, being pot committed if you're a poker player or you could say run good money after bad. I think people totally get the concept. And people are very suspicious of things like HS2. Um, you know, when you have a grandstanding politician who comes in promising a big, shiny infrastructure um, project, um, I think people tend to be pretty sceptical, and rightly so, of that. Um, unfortunately, I suppose, um, I think the issue is that people are very afraid at the moment. So um, fear is a very powerful tool to um, keep people in line and not asking too many questions. So people who are, that, that scepticism, I haven't seen that coming through as I think it should be done about the fact of the lockdown in general. I, I agree, we're missing that, that scepticism. And I think it's partly that people seem to not have the ability to think critically. I mean, you and I, you and I both read English and I wanted to talk to you about that, even though it annoys, it really pisses off some people. They say, oh God, he's talking about Oxford again. But look, yeah. it's interesting. It's an interesting, it, it is an interesting. They also get annoyed when it's like literature, because I think they think that they've cornered the, the arts. So they hate it if they meet a right winger who can, can quote literature and knows about paintings. <laughs> it really pisses them off. <laughs> That's that is absolutely true. That's absolutely true. And we've got to talk about that as well. We've got to talk about, about poetry. Yeah. Um, but, but uh, you, know, you know this, this, this uh, fashion for uh, bigging up the sciences and, and maths and the STEM sub subjects and how we're told that, that the only thing we should, we should spend money on at universities is STEM subjects and everything else is a waste of time. But actually, my experience of, of dealing with the, the, the whole climate change nonsense, nonsense has taught me that actually scientists are, are just as prey to, to wrong ideas and corruption and everything else as arts graduates. And actually, what we arts graduates, some of us have, is an ability to think critically. I mean, we've spent our time sitting down with Beowulf or whatever and, yeah. and learning about what Grendel's mother does doesn't do <laughs> and somehow we've acquired the art i don't know how but it's it's not a rubbish subject to do is it english of course it's not i think the problem is that um it's a brilliant subject more people should do it and i actually don't like the devaluing of the arts that's happened um i think you get these ministers who come in they seem to think that obviously stem is a huge hugely important uh, skill and it's something that we definitely need in the decades to come but i think they the new conservative signaling is to be a bit dismissive of lefty arts graduates and to yeah. kind of suggest that that's not important and then say that we should do the engineering 
um, and all of that, which is obviously super important. But at the same time, they say that yeah. they want to win the culture war. And how can you win the culture war if you don't have any conservatives who are in the arts or uh, know about films and you know, all that stuff? So I think they are being somewhat short-termist there. And also, there is a value in education for the sake of it, which is so important. Most people who do science and engineering don't go on to be scientists or engineers. They end up doing you know, reg regular jobs like everybody else rather than anything specialised. Um, yeah, so the, the point about literature, it's hugely helpful to have that analytical framework. I also think, though, that those subjects do breed a, a kind of generation of chameleon people who are very good at taking on a new argument quickly, uh, but could perhaps lose sight of what, what it is they actually believe, because we're used to the essay crisis mode where you have four hours to get the poem, write an essay. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, you might, you might say it's thinking on your feet, or you might say it's bullshitting, depending on how you feel about arts graduates. <laughs> um, so, I, I think it's a bit of both. <laughs> Sorry? But aren't, aren't, you really, aren't you really describing PPE graduates there? I mean, they're the I mean, worst. That's, that's definitely and, uh, my at university. <laughs> I can't speak to yours, but... Uh... No, no, oh, oh, it was, oh, definitely, no, I know, I mean, essay crisis and all that, but, but, but um, I, I do think that, that uh, when it comes to complete amorality, it's PPE graduates who are, are, are most prey to the sins that you describe. I mean, yeah. I, and unfortunately, cabinets are chock full of these people. They, have, they, they really do not, I think, have any core belief system. They don't have any ideological backbone. They don't, they're not classical liberals. They're not libertarians. They believe in nothing but the pursuit of power. And they've been taught that that is the correct purpose of pol politics. Do yeah, you know I do. Um, I think we saw that particularly under Theresa May. It was not obvious what her ideological underpinnings were, uh, such that they were. It seemed to be a mixture of um, uh, Joseph Chamberlain, um, which was a, a sort of Nick Timothy thing, and uh, a bit of Ted Heath as well, because she actually became a member of the Tory party under Ted Heath. So clearly, imagine if Ted Heath was the person that inspired you to join the Tory party. What's that say about you? <laughs> um, and I think there was the, an absence of ideas, which perhaps is what led to them nicking most of them from the Ed Miliband 2015 manifesto. Yes. Well, what do we do to get out of this mess? I mean, I, I read a piece just recently saying that Gove needs to be Kingslayer, he needs to, you know, do a, a Jamie Lannister number on, 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 the, on the Mad King, Boris, like yeah. he tried and failed to do before. Gove, I mean, he's far too left-wing for me, but I think he does at least, I think, get that this coronavirus is a, is a kind of fake news story. I think he's got that now, which is, which is more than Boris has. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so difficult to know what's going on there because clearly the PM has been so influenced by his own experience, which I can totally understand that. But it's like we're living in a kind of... It reminds me very much of my time at university, actually, when we were constantly told when we were doing our kind of lefty gender studies modules that um, the personal is political. And it seems like Boris Johnson has had this damn conversion. Um, he needs to lose weight. Therefore, we'll force the country on a diet, force them to cycle because he cycles. It, it's very, it's quite basic stuff, isn't it? Um, and it is hard to know how you, you get past that because there is clearly an issue of, um, people in cabinet not being listened to it, it's all you know it's a mixture it's a kind of very highly centralized team and a lot of the experienced people that like Gove um, have been have been kicked out so I agree he's probably the kind of the, the, the most capable person left in cabinet who could do something about this um, 
I really don't understand what's happened. It's it's not doesn't seem to be the Boris Johnson that I knew. I used to edit his column quite often on Sundays, and oh, did you? Yes, I used to think of. Um, I, I think and I li- like them very much, but I, I always thought of him as quite a kind of bold, brave sort of person, um, and advent- you know a, a bit of a risk taker and adventurous. And it, it does seem as though the, the combination of this scary disease, or well, it has never a disease that you and I might think has been overhyped, but it hasn't nevertheless killed a lot of people in this country, um, and it's clearly severely affected the PM. Um, I don't know how we break past that really. Uh, especially if the cabinet is as centralised and inward-looking as it appears to be. Yes. Well, again, th- that critical thinking we were, we were talking about, we've got the situation where, having initially said they were going to lock us down to, what was it, to squash the sombrero. I mean, Boris is good at his phrases. Oh, the so he wanted to squash the sombrero in order to save our NHS. Um, well, fine. It turned well, out that our not, NHS did, didn't need to That's not how a health system should work. We're not there to, to to sacrifice our lives for this inanimate health service that we also have forced to go and clap for on Thursdays. Um, it's clearly a bigger part of our, it's as big a part of our national story as, as Shakespeare, if you're going, going by the opening ceremony of the Olympics. I mean, I, I fundamentally yes. hate the protect the NHS thing. It's just ridiculous. And the fact that we've all accepted it shows, I guess, how far the termites spread. Um, because other countries, this would not be normal. This is clown country territory. Um, other countries have uh, the idea of going out and clapping the health service, not not the individuals in the health service, but increasingly the health service itself. Um, countries that have much better health services than we do would think that was utterly ridiculous. Um, sorry to cut you off, but yeah, I just think that that is a ridiculous formulation that has been asked of us. No, you are you are actually encouraged to cut me off. Some some people complain that that that, that I talk too much, and I kind of I, I want to say to these people actually. I mean, you know, just a, a brief interlude here. Um, that it's a bit like saying that Clint Eastwood is is the same in all the movies he plays, in all the characters he plays, and you think, yeah, but he's Clint Eastwood. It's like. Uh, okay, I, I mean, I do the shit that James Dunningpole does. That's how it works. It, the, and I have conversations with people, and maybe I I talk a lot sometimes, and sometimes I hold back. It's what, but it's not like they're not interviews. What phase of Clint Eastwood do you think you'd be in right now? Are you at your notorious phase, or is it is it before then? Hopefully, we haven't got to the recent Clint Eastwood phase, which is not a good one to be in. Ah, oh, dear. Which I'm feeling like I'm definitely not. You know, I'm definitely not the good, the bad, and the ugly anymore. Um, I, I'm, I'm more in the what's pale rider, I suppose. I'm that. Yeah, pale that's rider. Good, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good call. That's pro- probably where I am. But yeah. I mean, Clint is. You can't argue with Clint. Like you can't argue with with Michael Caine. I mean, yeah. that they, they've they've somehow managed to transcend uh, that that liberal lefty world that we lamented. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I, I genuinely think that the, the time that they were young actors, there was probably still something of a liberal bubble, but it was not a horribly exclusionary one that exists now where you really have to think a certain way, unless, of course, you're on the left, in which case you can say the kind of stuff that Miriam Margulies has said and, and um, no one cares. Um, but it's really, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's, it's a great example of the, um, the kind of mission creep, I guess, 
of the re- recent decade. It's really good, isn't it? That we, you can't... I think... Yeah. I sort of... I agree with you up to a point, but I, but I, I do think that, that Clint and um, uh, Michael Caine are pretty sui generis. The, the, the reason that they're so great is because they just don't give a shit. I mean, the, yeah. they are... They are they are really comfortable in their skin and they're not afraid to take the risk of of not going along to get along with the politics, which is which is what almost. I mean, you think about an industry. Who are their contemporaries? I mean, Robert Redford, Pinko, Paul Newman, Pinko. I mean, the, the, you look around at their contemporaries. Who, who, who is there who's not who's not a lefty anywhere? Well, <laughs> you, you can use James Woods. I mean, he's younger, but but. Not many. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I mean, look, look at look at the shit our mate Lawrence Fox has been yeah. getting just for, for 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 being normal. I mean, that's the thing. He hasn't said anything extreme or weird. He's no. just been like you and me. Yeah. And and he's been crucified for it. And it's it's not just um, someone more high profile like like Lawrence, but it's you know I've got friends who work in the arts who think. Um, who are of conservative worldview, and they have to keep really quiet about it. Um, a friend of mine recently got chucked off a film that she was working on because they found out that she was a conservative. They found her Twitter or something, and they just chucked her off uh, unceremoniously. Um, and of course, no one cares about this because she's not yet well known. But this, this kind of, there's we we tend to focus on the headline case of cancel culture, but then below the surface, there are often these terrible injustices that have been committed. Um, that don't ever see the light of day. I think it's particularly bad for people of you know for, for your generation, because at least at least people of my age and older have had a few years to establish themselves before cancel culture existed. But if you li- if you quite literally cannot be a conservative now, a, an actor and a conservative, and 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 have any kind of career, what does it, what does that? How, how do we get? How do we get our world back? I just what's your solution? Don't know. I mean, the one saving grace of this is that I've, there is a, there is a trend of brands and films going for tedious political messaging and um, and getting ruined as a result. So you have the, the, the quite lame and lazy attempts to slot women into franchises like the all, all female Ghostbusters. Stop. It always yeah. bombs. These things always bomb um, because yeah. people are not stupid. Uh, there's nothing wrong with a franchise that's all female, but if it's been put there purely as a tokenistic thing, I think people feel a bit insulted. The audience sees through it, and they decide that they're not going to go and spend their money. Um, and then you get think pieces in the Guardian being like, "This shows the endemic sexism of the country because they didn't go and see um, the, the, the all female Ghostbusters." Uh, but ultimately, you can't yeah. argue the market in that that respect. But I guess the problem is that we can. The consumer can choose not to enjoy these things, but the trouble is, I guess, that if the right-wing stuff uh, isn't being made, if right-wing people are being cut out, then that's only that's only kind of that doesn't really solve the fundamental problem. Um, I don't know how you solve it, but I, I do think that with things like crowdfunding, it's easier than ever for people to start t- finding things that they support uh, and donating some money um, on that basis. So I think perhaps the internet and, and um, the um, the GoFundMe stuff is the way forward. Well, this is this is of course why um, the battle against 
the, the uh, Silicon Valley is so important right now. I mean, this is this is the front line of the culture war, isn't it? Because if if, for example, the crowdfunding sites become so woke that they will not allow conservatives to raise money for their projects, well, then those projects won't get made. Um, or, all or it takes is an opportunity yeah. for you know the right wing GoFundMe to get off the ground. Um, I mean, it's not difficult to set up a website like that, which allows people to raise money. Um, you know, th there's always an opportunity when, when people start cancelling and, and censoring. Um, it, it's easy with something like GoFundMe. It's much harder with things like YouTube because there is such a monopoly that that really does have a massive impact. Um, like you, Mads, I do have this, this possibly naive faith in the power of the market. I do believe in free markets and I do believe that that if the left insists on on capturing all the kind of the, the filmmaking institutions and turning them so woke that no one wants to watch any of their product anymore, that therefore there is what we call a gap in the market yeah. and that some enterprising, you know, Delling Pole Indust Fox Delling Pole Industries, Fox <laughs> Delling Pole Grant Industries uh, moves in there funded by one of the one of the billionaires who who listen to this podcast and we form we you know what would we call ourselves so you know whatever Delling Grant Fox um Inc and and we we make we make classic you know when we make Les Miserables um for example we don't cast a black guy as Inspector Javert because yeah. in 1830s France there wouldn't have been a black police inspector, you know. Yeah. Just, just that's maybe, the way the cookie crumbles. In the same, maybe in not. The same way. When, we, when, when you make Zulu, are you what? Well, enough of what's going to happen? Sorry. I feel like if we were making Les Mis, then we probably wouldn't make the student protesters the heroes of the of the story, would we? Like probably Javert is the, the hero, like rather than the anti-hero, the the policeman. He's just trying to yeah. do his job. <laughs> now we're talking. Now we're talking. I've always thought that that Marius. I mean, particularly as played by that that um, wet old Italian. It's only appropriate played Marius. I I always thought I thought very highly of him, but then he decided to go and throw J.K. Rowling under the bus um, for virtue signalling reasons. And oh, just I I thought he was one of he seemed quite always seemed like a sensible sort to me. I was I was clearly very wrong indeed. Hasn't it, one of the interesting things about these times, one of the few sort of saving graces of this shit show that we're living through is it's you're constantly seeing people who you thought were allies turning into arch enemies and people who you thought were just kind of completely lost. J.K. Rowling, for example. I mean, you know, J.K. Rowling suddenly deciding that Hermione was black, um, <laughs> like, you know, is, is that you're allowed to do that as an author? I'm not sure you are. I think, you know, if, if it's fairly clear what you wrote in the original, but you can't suddenly yeah. revise them just because she said woke. That Hermione was black. I think she said that she could have been. Um, and that is fair enough. I mean, that I think, as you, as you, as you alluded to, once you've written something and you've sent it off, um, J.K. Rowling's yeah. problem is that at times she weighs in to say this definitely happened or this definitely didn't happen or this happened to this character. So she kind of doesn't let the book yeah. die because Pottermore and stuff is still going. But equally... Um, I think it's, you know, I don't think Hermione is black, but I think you could possibly, could pr you could, you could, you, you don't, it's not clear enough that she isn't, but it would be totally ridiculous to have a, a black Hermione. Um, but yeah, I know, I do know what you mean. Um, I think that... What about Dumbledore? 
Dumbledore. Is he gay? Oh, I definitely think he's gay. Definitely. And it's quite, I think it, it makes sense in the book that he's gay too, because he's got this love for uh, his, he, for a long time he follows Grindelwald. Uh, I don't know if you know, if you're familiar with this, but for a long time Dumbledore kind of ignored his good instinct to, to, to team up and, and indulge in some quite dodgy ideas with his friend Grindelwald. That makes a lot of sense if he's secretly in love with Grindelwald, because obviously we all do crazy things when we're in love, so that makes sense. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> you are actually, you are, because I know some people of my persuasion, of our persuasion, get really cross when anyone invokes Harry Potter. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a sign that you are really stupid. But you are actually quite a, you're quite a Potter file, aren't you? You're quite an expert. I know a lot about Harry Potter, yes. Um, it was my mastermind special specialist subject. Um, and I was a big fan as a child. I mean, I read loads of other books too. It's not like I only read Harry. I think the, the criticism is that Harry Potter is the only thing that people read, um, which I suppose it often is. But in my case, I, I just see Harry Potter is very much in the canon of great children's literature. It's got a bit of the Pevensies. It's got a lot of Enid Blyton. Um, and you can also tell it's got quite a lot of Agatha Christie. And I love Agatha Christie. Um, and you can also tell that she's influenced by Jackson in her dialogue, like I think it's a really top-notch book, um, amazing plot. And the other thing about Harry Potter that people forget, particularly lefties, is that even though J.K. Rowling herself is of the left, um, she's obviously a long-time supporter of the Labour Party, the message of Harry Potter is super, super libertarian. Um, the whole thing is about bringing down corrupt government. Um, apart from Voldemort, the Ministry of Magic is the second biggest villain. Uh, it's got a very strong message about being anti-totalitarian and being pro-free speech. And it's even got a bit of that Lord of the yeah. Rings at the end of um, at the end of the Fellowship. Uh, sorry, the, the the Return of the King. Um, the impulse of the hobbits. All they want is to just go home and have a quiet life with their families, um, particularly Sam. Um, that's a very conservative instinct. And Harry Potter ends in much the same way with Harry Potter sending his kids off to the boarding school. Um, Hogwarts is super super elitist. Yeah, and sending them off to boarding yeah. school, following his footsteps. You know, it's it's a it's a public yeah. school book, and I think. Without realizing it, she wrote this incredible defense of freedom. I, that's that's a very that's a very good an analysis. Yes. You, so, do you think that they're they're well written or not? I mean, they're very well plotted. Um, they but, get better. She she can see how she improves as a writer. And they're not the best written books ever, but they're also they are. She's aiming for a, a, a child audience, um, and I think they're very they're very funnily written. Um, there are characters that don't really do very much and you still feel that you have a very strong sense of who they are, which is quite a skill for a writer to pull off. But it's really only sort of like it's the kind of thing that you see in Austin Shakespeare Dickens, where a minor character has a lot of character. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, obviously she's not the, the greatest writer of all time, but in terms of the world that she created, it's, I, I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal. I don't know how she did it. Yeah, no, I don't... I, I, this is this is really good stuff actually because I I read all the Harry Potter books and when whenever a new edition came out we would buy two editions so that I could read one simultaneously with my wife because we didn't want to have to wait that's yeah. how, that's how keen we were and I think people might be surprised to hear me say that and probably surprised to hear that well unless they've seen you on Mastermind to, to hear somebody so erudite praising Harry Potter but I think. Rowling sometimes gets a bad rap as a writer, and I don't think that's fair. Yes, um, but there's also it's it's a very lefty thing to say that because you disagree with someone's politics that you can't enjoy the art. 
that's a really left-wing thing to do. And I don't think the right mm. should be indulging in it. I mean, obviously, there are times where the art gets destroyed because they make it too political. So, for example, I don't know, there was this really, really rubbish, Richard, I think it was Richard Curtis film called Last Christmas, um, which was the kind of Christmas chick flick a, a few years ago. And they turned it into this really quite sanctimonious film about it's clearly very anti-Brexit. Um, and it just wasn't a very good film. And you felt that the, the filmmaker's hand on the scales had kind of ruined, ruined it. Um, but equally, you can have great films that have a left-wing message. And, of course, right-wing people can enjoy them. Um, it's a very tedious lefty thing to be like, because I disagree with them, I can't read their books. Yes, yes. Although, I'm not sure that, that um, it's in the same league as Lord of the Rings, is it? I... I don't like Lord of the Rings as that much, um, but I think that was just because... But you not. I do like Lord of the Rings very much. I mean, I've read it several times, but the one I think it was the one that I was really obsessed with as a kid happened to be Harry Potter, so it's hard for me to be unbiased <laughs> about that. I think oh, it's, of course, it's you not a child when it came out. I think Narnia is the best of the lot. Um, better than Potter, better than Lord of the Rings. Although, of course, because... Narnia is going to get cancelled soon. Um, if it hasn't been cancelled already, what would the what happens to Susan at the end? Do you remember this? No, in remind the, me. Remind me. In the last battle, they all spoiler warning. Um, they all go to the they all go, all the, the characters who have appeared in the books. All the kids who have gone to Narnia are involved in the same car crash or train crash, and they all go up to heaven except for Susan, who hasn't been on board the train or car with them. Um, and then they get to heaven and they're like, "What's going to happen to Susan?" And I think Aslan says to them that Susan isn't isn't going to return to Narnia because she basically discovered boys and jazz music and lipstick and nylons. And therefore, she's only interested in these things and she can't come to Narnia heaven with the rest of her family. So poor Susan, her, family's, her whole family's died and she's so vapid that she's not going to be allowed to go up to Narnia heaven. So feminists have a big problem with that. <laughs> <sighs> I well, I mean, suddenly I I, I want to read that book. Acus, I've <laughs> that's extraordinary. That that that, that. Yeah. what which what, what what's the title of that book? That's the last battle. It's the last of the Narnia series. Um, oh, okay. But I actually I think that um, I think that C.S. Lewis intended to maybe write another book in which he explains how Susan does find her way back to Narnia. I don't think he intended it to be left like that. Um, I'm just I think perhaps he didn't live to write the the, the Susan Chronicle or whatever. Is my reading of it. I've got to ask before we move on. Um, how did you do in Mastermind? Um, I actually won my round when I was doing Harry Potter. I did quite a kind of average yeah. general knowledge round, but I just I know everything about Harry Potter, so I got all right, full, full marks for Harry. That took me up to first place. Um, and then the second round, I got my ass handed to me on a plate by some much cleverer people. Um, I was doing Jane Austen for the second, but I just I had the general knowledge questions. I got the second round one. Well, they were really bad for me personally. I found them difficult, um, but it was it was really fun to do. I think once you get through the first round, you're up against some proper quizzing, you know, extraordinary proper quizzes, um, yeah. yeah, sort of full time rather than amateur hour. <laughs> and and how much? I mean, if you didn't have the nerves and stuff, how much better would you have done? Or do you find that you you are as good as you can be on the day? Well, actually, I I mean, I've always done a lot of competitive sports um and when I was at school I, I did a lot of quizzing because I was really cool um so I actually the nerves are, I find 
obviously it's awful beforehand, but I think once you're in that situation, it really helps marshal your thoughts. You can, you can, you can remember stuff that you wouldn't be able to if you weren't kind of buzzing. Um, so for me, at least, it was, the nerves were kind of part of it. See, the thing is, I, what bothers me is that we're, there's, there's like so much that I want to talk to you about well, I mean, it shouldn't be a bothersome thing at all. It's a good thing, but but we we are going to have to, we are going to have to do some further podcasts with ideally better better um, internet quality. I mean, that's the I think that's the only flaw in this in this oh, otherwise I'm, matchless podcast. Um, no, no, I'm in the office because the internet there is 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 perfect. So, um, yeah, less of the spluttering. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, but normally, normally the, the problem's my end. And also, I, you know, I'm annoying at the moment because of my arm pain. You know, my um, I've hurt my back, and so yeah. I keep having to kind of move my arm around to stop the, the little jabs of, of of pain that I'm getting. In fact, I'm I'm still I'm I'm coming off this Valium, and that's been quite a weird experience. Um, like I've been getting the bleakest, bleakest despair, and you know, I can see why people kill themselves suddenly like like when when people go into the dark place it's the withdrawal from the valley that's the the difficulty i suppose yeah yeah that's oh, hard, when you want it, it's great <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean I, I i i could i could very happily pass my life the rest of my life in a kind of valium i know valium haze it's I don't like, think you could maintain that. I think probably diminishing returns. It's so nice, isn't it? So you think, why shouldn't I be able to live like this forever? But I'm sure that if you take it, uh, I'm sure that you're doing the right thing. Because if you keep taking it day in, day out, then I'm sure you need more and more to get the same effects. And then it gradually takes over your life. So it's really hard right now, I'm sure. But I'm, sh- I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure that it will, once it stabilises a bit, it will get easier. Have you read um, The Razor's Edge? Sorry? The Razor's Edge. Have you read the Razor's Yeah. Read it. Really, really, really good. Um, because um, I've got... Um, oh, hell, on, the phone's going. It's anno- annoying. And <laughs> phone. The phone is going. Sorry, I'm, I'm sharing an office with my wife and she has to... Get <laughs> she's wearing headphones. Well, yeah. No, Somerset Maugham. <laughs> my... My offspring are, are both reading English, so I get, you know, I get chastised for how little I... God, Dad, you've, it's amazing how little you've actually read, given that you read English. You know, have you not read so-and-so? I yeah. read The Razor's Edge the other day, Sunset Morn. Fantastic. There's a character in it called, called um, Larry. And, and Larry, it, it's all about different ways of living your life. So it's, quite, it's quite germane to our conversation earlier on. Um, different characters take different paths you know somebody takes the path of of kind of marrying marrying into money and having the trappings of of, of wealth and somebody seeks the kind of ascetic life of the of the of the, the spiritual life and and yeah. this character larry goes goes to an ashram and and he he seeks that i was thinking that's probably like a bit like taking valium if you dedicate yeah. your life to this to this world where you renounce the flesh then maybe you would get something close to that. Um, did you know, Mads, yes. that you are the only person I've ever had on the podcast and probably one of the, you're probably only one of about, um, I'm guessing maybe a hundred people in the country, and I'm another of them, by the way, that has memorised Bernd Norton. 
Did you know oh this? Oh my god! Really? Can you do yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I can. I, 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 you see, I, so a few years ago, I, I became convinced because I'm a hypochondriac that I was having early onset Alzheimer's, and in, in fact, what it was was my Lyme disease, which was, which was making me go. It gives you a thing called brain fog, where you, where you just forget stuff, and you, and you get aphasia. You, you forget words and, and names. It's really bad. Anyway, so to try and um, try and keep my brain sort of ticking over. I started yeah. learning poetry. And when it came to Eliot, I thought, because I, I, I learned one poem per, per poet originally, although, I mean, Shakespeare, you've got to do a bit more, haven't you, really? You can't just do a, a sonnet. Eliot's but I was thinking... Oh, yeah. So I thought, the wasteland? Yeah, but everyone's going to do the wasteland. Well, they, they wouldn't. Um, J. Alfred Prufrock? Yeah, yeah but, it's, but, but what about Burnt Norton? Um, because... Uh, I was thinking that you'd get to learn lines like the footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take towards the door we never opened. And I just thought there were some really good phrases in that poem. Yes. I love the rose garden and uh, to what purpose disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves. I do not know. It's glorious, isn't it? Interesting you say that you, you quote that line. Now, here's what's that when you learn poems, you really inhabit them. And you really learn the process that the poet went through when he was creating that poetry. And I've always been puzzled by that line. Why, why a, a, a bowl of rose leaves? Why not rose petals? What, why leaves? Who, who preserves rose, rose leaves? I don't know why it's rose leaves as opposed to uh, rose petals. But I suppose I think that's quite a... I mean, I don't understand what the four quartets. It's the most fiendishly difficult poem that... I've come across and every time I read it depending on what mood I'm in it seems to mean something different which I think is a testament to its genius as a poem but it's different to the wasteland where I think you can quite clearly say that there's some first world war stuff um there's echoes of his troubled marriage um and obviously there's his his the religious element but ultimately it is just difficult and there are these um the the floral imagery that that recurs throughout the poem is is is, is a kind of uh, is one of the very few things that is um, kind of sustained. The whole thing is quite fragmented. Uh, it's sort of hard to make sense of it. But I think it's kind of like, um, he does rather like imagery that's alive and then it's dead. There's a lot of that in the wasteland, uh, dust and so on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, God, I don't know. <laughs> I have no, no idea. And you were... You were going to use the lockdown to, to learn the next one, which is what? Is that Little Gidding or East Coco or No, that's that, that not been going well because then it was August and um, half my colleagues are on holiday at the moment. So it's just been mental. Um, so I've just, yeah, it's been, I've been finally doing the kind of hours that I opted not to do when I decided I didn't want to be an investment banker or a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have you just done Elliot, or do you have you got the got the range of poets? Have I've, you got a treasury of poets in your head? I have, yes. I mean, I did a lot. My mum did English at university as well, and she um, used to read me a lot of poetry when I was a kid before bed. Um, so actually, most of the stuff I remember off by heart is from when I was a child, because I think when you learn poetry young, your brain is still very uh, supple, um, and you remember it forever. Whereas I find that with, with the Eliot that I've learned, um, 
I have to go back and revisit and I'm often amazed by how much I've forgotten even in a short space of time um which has not happened to me uh when I'm with the poems I learned as a kid um I used to, I, I can't do it now but I used to be able to do you know obviously the, everyone could do like the jabberwocking out on the pussycat and all that kind of stuff um I used to be able to do the whole of the rhyme of the ancient mariner when I was a kid um that took some doing could you um, yeah <laughs> I can barely remember it now um but um I think Eliot is harder because obviously it's um you know it's 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 free verse and it's kind of it's not um you don't have the um the structure of rhymes and so on to keep to, to you know which are a form of mnemonic actually um anything rhyming is we use mnemonics all the time in our day-to-day -day lives to help us remember things no I I I think I was mentioning on a previous podcast that Eliot definitely is the hardest thing I've, I've I've had to learn and it took me it must have taken me at least a year to learn it um whereas I've been learning a Goethe poem in German and it's much much Which easier works. because you've got rhythm Erlkönig oh um, yeah yes yes er hat den Knaben wohl in dem Arm er hat fast ihn sicher er hat ihn warm <laughs> mein Vater, mein Vater. Yes. Mein, so yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Mein Sohn, was, was <laughs> willst du so bang in dein Gesicht? That, that one you can remember. Was du so den Elkönig nicht? <laughs> the, yeah, it's funny you mentioned, mentioned your, your mother, um, yes. because my mother is really into poetry. And I the other day I learned... Um, Baudelaire's L'Albatros, which is one of my favourite French poems. Do you know it? I it's don't. Fantastic. I don't know. Oh, it's, 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 it's about it's it's about the it's about the artist uh, as uh, the poet as uh, he's like the albatross flying above humanity, observing. But when he's on the ground uh, in 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 grubby reality, his his um, huge wings um, make him all ungainly and ugly. So he soars in the clouds, but when he's on earth, he's, he's just like, you know, he's, he's lower than low. It's a beautiful poem. Anyway, I, I learned it and I discovered that my mother, my mother knew it as well. And um, you know how you sort of discover these bonds with your parents that you never knew you had. As, yeah. as, as you get older, you, your relationship changes. Um, but I, I think learning poetry is one of, is one of the, my favourite things that I've discovered in, in, in later life. It's just yeah. like... It's a, it's a free thing to have in your brain and you start quoting stuff. It's amazing, isn't it? And I find that often um, at times of difficulty or um, even if it's just something totally random, um, you get a random bit of poetry that comes into your head that, you know, it triggers some memory or it, it's relevant to your situation. And it just makes you feel that you're, you're not alone, that people have, over hundreds of years have, um, have, have been through this stuff, you know, so... Uh, you have some some duck messes you around, um, and then you think of there's a line of Shakespeare about you can't trust men, for example, uh, or uh, there's you know that uh, you know the nymphs reply to the shepherds. Um, obviously, the passionate shepherd to his love Marlowe, come live with me and be my love. Do you know that yeah. one? Yeah. Um, but I, I, know, I, know, I know that poem. Yeah. Yeah. Walter Raleigh did a really good riposte to it, which is called the nymphs reply to the shepherd, um, and it starts with something like. If all the world and love were young um, and truth in every shepherd's tongue, uh, these earthly pleasures might move to live with thee and be thy love. Uh, so it's basically saying, you know, 
you can't trust men. Um, and you, I don't know, I think it's really helpful if you go, go through difficulty to know that someone has been there before, whatever it is, um, whether it's bereavement or love or whatever it is. So it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of, yeah, it's the best thing you can do for a kid is teach them loads of poems when they're young. And you think that, that there was a time, probably, probably before the 1950s, right, up, up to the 1950s, when lots and lots of people, not just kind of uh, smartly educated Oxbridge graduates, um, but lots of people, grammar school people, secondary school people, would have, would have imbibed poetry. They'd have learned poems by heart. They'd have been made to learn poems by heart. Yeah. And they would have had these phrases embedded in their brains, and, and it would have just crept into the language in the, in the same way that the language of the 1662 prayer book or the King James Bible has infected our language. I know, and when you take that away from people, it's... it's it's not just that we can't commune with our ancestors anymore, but we can't really commune with each other in quite the same way. Um, I mean, I, you're absolutely right. My, my granddad was from a very poor family in North Wales. Um, he went to a grammar school, but his dad was, you know, down the mine and it was really poor. And he used to get one present, uh, one book a year for Christmas and birthday in the, in the 1920s. Um, and they were all, you know, very well educated. They educated themselves mostly throughout their lives. Yeah. Um, you know, you go to the, I remember going to stay with him um, and there would just be a whole row of very well looked after, lovely hardback Dickens novels that had been passed down to him. And I think that was quite actually quite a common experience that people were self-improving. Um, I guess we've got other things now to divert us other than uh, reading novels or learning poetry off by heart, but I think it's a shame. Well, also, it doesn't it doesn't it go some way to explain us uh, this this ugly deracinated culture that we now inhabit? All this, all the nonsense about all the all the iconoclasm, the pulling down of statues, that this this destruction of our history, of our common heritage, um, for political reasons, I think is part of a. It's it's going to leave us more fragmented, less happy, less connected with our past. Yeah, and it's led by people who who claim to value, who to be on the side of the angels, but they don't know what it is that they value instead. You know, they're, they're not proposing an alternative. Um, they're simply tearing stuff down um, with no thought for what might, re what might replace it. Or indeed, if they are the right people to be tearing down our past, what gives them the right to do that? What, wh who ordained that these people who, um, you know, often barely know the name of the person whose statue they're pulling down, you know, who, who made them the, uh, the arbiters of, which parts of our heritage we're allowed to keep and which we're not. The thing that really disgusts me, though, beyond those people, is that the educated people with history PhDs, um, professors, who've lined up and suggested that this is all fine. You know, I saw um, Professor Kate Williams, who's been absolutely atrocious during the whole statue thing. She's um, awful. She, yeah. she said, um, I mean, I, I, don't, I haven't read any of her books. I've no idea if she's any good as a historian. Um, she must be good to, have, to be in that position or whatever. But, you know... I just couldn't believe that someone in her position, she was, she was saying that what we're seeing with the Colston statue being torn down is history in the making and therefore it's fine. And they were comparing it to Saddam Hussein. And then obviously anyone with any knowledge of history knows that they never stop at the first thing. And that, um, you know, if you put the power in the hands of the angry mob, then don't be surprised when they come for something that you really do value, not just some, a slave trader who you don't. Um, but it was the people like that, the useful idiots who were lining up. And the fact that it's left to people like, like us, people lowly BAs for, in art subjects, 
we should have the, you know, we sh there should be more PhD types and professors and people who actually lead, lead, lead thought in terms of culture and art saying this is wrong. You don't just tear statues down. Yes, but isn't part of the problem that that fields like history and English have have changed beyond all recognition? I mean, you you were probably the last to get an education, uh, an Oxford education, where you could actually read books and study the study the texts as as texts. You know, you you read Jane Austen and and appreciated yeah. it as literature rather than as a kind of a feminist or proto-feminist critique of whatever. Uh, or, yeah. or, or, or had 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 the citadel already fallen by the time you were there? There was a bit of that. Yes, we had to do one paper that was um, purely critical theory. Um, so it was well literary theory, but it was a lot of the critical theory stuff, lots of Marxist readings, lots of post-colonial readings, um, fem uh, feminism, and you know some of this stuff is not entirely without uh, its its merit, but some of it is is pure either victimhood Olympics or it's um, trying to read narratives into things that really aren't there. So I remember one person did a kind of environmental reading of something from Shakespeare, like from the perspective of the environment. I think they were looking at like, might have been the Tempest, you know, like what they've done to the island. This is just when you could be looking at so much more than just that. They've chosen to zone in on how Prospero looked after the island in the Tempest. I mean, it just seems to be a bit of a waste of time to me. Um, so there was already a bit of that, but no, in general, it was it was great experience. Um, it's a very self motivated uh, course, so you, you go off. You don't have that much contact time. You have to go off and do your own thing, come up with your own arguments. Um, but actually, I'm, increasingly, I think that the, I've learnt more since I've left. Actually, um, probably there's fewer distractions than there were at university, but um, less drinking probably. <laughs> um, but. Well yeah, reading, reading now is a real joy um, because it's a hobby and it's not my course. So I probably do, I probably have read more books since I left than when I was there, actually. A question I forgot to ask you. Um, did you learn the Greek epigraph at the, at the top of um, Bert Norton or not? No. When, you, when you're, I, no, I, I didn't either. <laughs> I just go straight in with time present and time past. Yes. I probably should yeah, yeah. And you, you didn't well, either. Oh, did you? No, I didn't. Because I would have thought, but you know what? If you said you had, I would have. I, I, I might have sort of resented you for it, actually, and I would have felt bad. And so, thank you for not making me feel bad. And have you learned Gray's Elegy? I can do bits of it, but no, not God, no, not the whole thing. Um, can I totally? I'm, totally I'm like the, that. There's a character I love. You know, I love Jane Austen. Jane Austen is my favourite writer. Um, there's a great um, bit in. Emma, where Mrs. Elton quotes a line from Gray's Elegy, you know, um, full many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweet sweetness on the desert air. But of course, being yeah. Mrs. Elton, she's only, they didn't read the whole poem in those days. They just learnt little snippets that you were, if you were a marriageable yeah. young woman, you'd learn the snippet and then you'd, you'd insert it into conversation to look really clever. And so Jane Austen brutally has her getting it slightly wrong. So she says fragrance instead of sweetness. <laughs> so I think I'm more oh, in the yeah. Mrs. <laughs> The sort of sort of hyacinth bouquet character, yeah. hyacinth bucket character, and and actually, um, me and hyacinth bouquet are from Leamington Spa, which is where they filmed Keeping oh. Up Appearances. So I've got quite a lot of hyacinth. Only only connect, eh? Um, yeah. The, 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 we um 
we hired this this tutor for my daughter who was absolutely brilliant he was the ex-head of english from eton and uh she found him on um, what's that what's that that site where you where you uh-huh. find you have affairs and things um oh, craigslist um, no yeah craigslist yeah you found him on craigslist oh, wow and, and he was absolutely he was he was brilliant and inspirational and he made a, he made a very interesting point about gray's elegy which yes. is that it is you you see in the poem the transition from the classical to the romantic so it starts off as this kind of you know formal formal elegy and then you get it suddenly becomes sort of really quite pastoral at the end which i'd never thought of before it's it's a it's a it's a lovely poem to learn. I, I I think it's almost my favourite, apart from To His Coy Mistress, which I think... Oh, I love... Like, I can do that one off my heart as well. <laughs> we but world enough in time, this coyness lady were no crime. <laughs> yeah, what's your, what, what's your, what's your favourite bit from that one? Um, your favourite? Um, well, I think it's got to be the, where the poem turns, um, but at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder all yeah. the fly deserts of vast eternity <laughs> yes yes i love i i, I, I think so. need a bit more carpe diem at the moment right now everyone's living sequestered in their homes um terrified um there were i wrote a piece with a spectator recently about dating in lockdown and i was a bit con- i'm quite concerned that some of the trends that are already happening with young people being cautious and risk averse and a bit suspicious of, of this between the sexes um, I think all of that has just been exacerbated by um, the virus. So I, I think actually, if I could make recommendations reading to all young people right now, it would be probably a bit of Andrew Marvel would, would sort them out. A bit of a bit of carpe diem. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that whole I, I poetry agree. that's like, you know, that, that genre. Is, it's, I, I'm trying to think of, there are some other examples. There's obviously, Taste Coy Mistress is the most famous one, but there's lots of John Donne and also... There's um, To the Virgins to Make Much of Time by Herrick. And it's basically, we're going to die, so let's have sex. <laughs> That's the theme of yeah, the poem. Yeah. And yeah. Maybe, I mean, it's, it's crude, but perhaps, perhaps you know, there needs to be a bit more of that carpe DMing. Yes. Yes, I agree. Um, yes. Uh, I, 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 yeah, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of, uh, there are pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah 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 exactly um sorry i'm i'm now i'm now starting to feel my 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 arm pain and oh. i'm thinking what what were the other what were the other things i wanted to talk to you about i mean there's just like so much literature which has been great um we talked about lockdown a bit um and how the government yeah. is um, incredibly depressed by the government um we, we've yeah i mean actually we, you know, we could have we could have done a whole podcast on that but the thing is I've, i'm getting so depressed by by just how crap this this government is i mean it's unbelievable isn't it today uh, it. at the time of this recording that they, they they're talking about knocking down buildings using the oh, excuse that they might have been infected jesus it, it, it's insane with number 10 because there was clearly there was a big um focal point of infections there early in the year so we should obviously start with possibly checkers to be on the safe side i mean it's just mental isn't it um and yeah all these these extraordinary i mean the thing is i don't believe that these people are necessarily authoritarians but 
but they why are they doing this? Are they enjoying themselves? With someone like Nicola Sturgeon, it's quite clear that she's loving the opportunity to extend her reach over um over the She's a she's the, a genuine fascist, I think. Yeah. She genuinely is loving it. And she's also loved the opportunity. There was talk recently of special quarantines on English passengers. So for her, it's an opportunity to involve in uh, to indulge in her characteristic authoritarianism and anglophobia. But when it comes to this yeah. government, I I still I don't believe that they're enjoying themselves. But what explains their behaviour if there isn't that authoritarian impulse? I mean, of course, there are individual cabinet members who probably are more authoritarian than others. Um, it doesn't really... Um, I guess perhaps they're afraid and nobody wants to have... Um, you know, there's a lot of political backpedalling and um, retro, sort of um, preemptive covering of um, arses going on at the moment. But um, a lot of I'm baffled by it, really. I know what I wanted to ask you. Um, why We're both from the Midlands. Um, and I've got this theory that people from the Midlands are the best. Um, because we're not, like, we're not like Londoners who are just kind of, they're part of the kind of the, the public sector behemoth, aren't they really? I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they're part of the, they're the enemy, they are the establishment. And then... Um, People from the north are just, they think that they're, well, actually I quite like northerners as well. But no, I think just, I don't want to diss other, other parts of the country. But I think that something about being a Midlander, that we don't sort of, uh, we like taking the piss. Yeah. We don't, we don't like, like people to get uh, too big for their boots. No. You know, we're quite good at cutting down poppies. And as, county, as counties go, I think Warwickshire, Worcestershire, Herefordshire, um, we, we love our counties, but we don't kind of pretend, go around joining in this, the game of like, who's got the biggest city, who's the best, what's the best county. We're just kind of quietly happy with ourselves. Whereas the Londoners and, dare I say it, Yorkshire, both of them love to be the top dog. Whereas I think we're a bit more down to earth and we're quite good at um, sort of, I mean, the, thing, the big thing in my family is always sort of don't get too big for your boots and if someone um someone does then you just have to rinse them um and bring them down to size i think that's quite a midlandry thing yeah i think so i w when i went up to oxford I, I went through a phase where i was really wishing i was posher and you know wishing i'd been to eton and stuff so that i could move in the smart set and, and stuff but actually i look back on that on myself and i sort of think you're a silly boy because actually, I'm I'm really happy where I come from. I'm really happy in my skin, and I just think that that Midlanders are great. And I, you know, I like the fact that you know my family are who they are. You know, not uh, not too posh. It's um, I, I think it's a, it gives you a good a perspective great, on the world. It's a great. I mean, it's a great neck of the woods for so many reasons that that I love. I mean, obviously, it's Shakespeare, country. Um, George Eliot, another of my favourite authors, also from Warwickshire. Um, but there's also the fact that, the, you know, it's the cradle of the Industrial Revolution. It's the birthplace of modern capitalism. Yes. That's a massive thing. And it's all, you know, my dad's a businessman. Um, got so much respect for um, people like my dad who set up, set up companies and create jobs for, for others. And I think there's that enterprising spirit that is really endemic to the Midlands. And it's so different to the bohemian behemoth of London, where it's, you know, it's all public sector or... Um, 
having a having to, to lie about sending your kids to private school so you can keep hold your head up high at the dinner party, but secretly getting them a private tutor so they can get into a grammar school. You know, that kind of hypocrisy that is so common in these circles. Um, whereas I guess perhaps in the Midlands, people are a bit more, you know, you don't have to worry about holding your, you can just be yourself and just do what, do what feels right for you. You're absolutely right uh, about the, um, about the industrial revolution. And I, it's still present in the culture that that growing up, almost everyone I know ran a small business or worked yeah. in a small business. There was nobody kind of working for the working for the government. That wasn't how it worked. And and and, and of course, it, it's it's these small businesses which are the engine of the economy. Yeah. And I worry that they're neglected. Oh, they are so neglected that it's it's horrific. I mean, the conversation is shaped by people who. I mean, I'm part of the problem, I guess, because I, I, I'm, I'm have an English degree, and I know, I, you know, I'm, I've never um, worked in the enterprising sector of the economy, so I'm, I'm, you know, no less guilty of it. But it is a problem when the conversation is shaped by people like me and the B- people at the BBC, and um, and also often gives particular voice to the BBC. Will, will, will focus predominantly on the public sector. There's so much coverage of questions about uh, will nurses get their pay rise, um, teachers getting a very large pay rise this year, despite the fact that they so many of them have manifestly fa- failed their pupils. Um, but when has the BBC discussed um, the, the contraction in wages that's happening in the private sector right now and all of these excellent small businesses that are perfectly viable um, through no fault of their own that are going to go under and, and um, you know take away the life's work of hardworking people? I mean, that's just absolutely shocking there seems to be no recognition that when the government says or does something bloody stupid or um when they decide that they want to terrify us into our homes um that's going to have a real tangible impact on an awful lot of people i think actually in your characteristically insightful way you've 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 put your finger on what makes us both so supremely wonderful and 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 also dangerous uh in that we look educationally and um, etc. We look like we're part of the establishment, but actually we are we are rebels from the Midlands who've worked our way into the into the system, and we can pass we can pass as the enemy, but we're not. We're working for the we're working for the horny-handed sons of toil. Yeah, but I think we, we sucks. still have, we it still have their values. It sucks that um, there are what passes for that because. If only we had a media that was, you know, better at listening to um, people who are struggling right now, who are really struggling and have set up these companies. I mean, obviously, people who are in charge of a company don't have all the time in the world to sit, chat and do podcasts and go on the news and stuff. Um, but I, I do wish that the BBC would give a bit more time to uh, that side of the argument, really, because it just seems to be endless alarmism about second wave, which in itself is a very dubious term that I would never use. Um and it's, it's between that and how will the NHS cope. The, the conversation is always very statist. Um, and I just wish they were going out and talking yes. to a few small business owners and taxi drivers. Oh, when, when all this is over, there's no question that the size of the state, the public sector, the, 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 the proportion of the economy occupied by, by the public sector will have increased. And the private sector, the, 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 the only sector that actually bankrolls the economy will have 
would have shrunk horribly and and people like your family and my family and the people we know and the areas we grew up will really really suffer real people who are creating value will be punished while the parasite class will be rewarded because the government doesn't want to take them on it doesn't want to take on the you know the 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 nurses and the whatever they uh, the teachers they just want to put more money money into their pockets even if they've been doing bugger all work totally totally and it seems as an assumption that this money comes from you know it's it's, it's infinite and um can be summoned at will really can't it's 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 we'll have to pay for it at some point uh, if not now then soon and um for a very long time but um yeah the the um the conversation i think has been partly uh, shaped by that status way of thinking but also often by people who for whom furlough and lockdown have actually been quite nice people who can easily work from yes. home it's hard for them to um imagine the, the suffering suffering and anxiety that this is causing but actually i think that some of these smug work from homers may have a bit of a rude awakening in the years to come because i think a lot of companies when this is over will realize that if work can be done anywhere um why would you pay london wages to someone who's you know in london or home counties to do that job where you could get someone in i don't know if you, you, you want a computer program or something uh, why not go further afield and pay someone Romania. much much other exactly romania even perhaps even further afield um I think a lot of people think that this can can be maintained indefinitely, but they may find that the remote working revolution is is a bit of a um, a kind of a, a bit of a, a sort of sort of Damocles type thing. Oh, I think I think the clerisy are completely ruined. I mean, all those all those middle class non. I don't see how this is going to survive. Those middle class make work positions like environmental sciences advisor or whatever or sustainability they think they can afford it now but when we start really getting the world of pain we're going to get from our crashing economy i don't see how these jobs are going to be to what to use their word sustainable no no they 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 won't and it's all it's already clear from just from what's happened over the last six months if you it feels like another era now but right before the pandemic struck the environment was the big topic of the day and the, the government was busy signing up to a zero carbon by 2050 commitment um and despite the fact that they were doing things like propping up airlines and it, it was all super contradictory didn't make any sense but that was that was the agenda of the day and it was that was dominating the conversation as soon as the pandemic struck and we were faced with a real crisis it became clear just how decadent a conversation that was um for example it becomes clear that we need plastic in all sorts of ways that we um, didn't appreciate yes. we were, when we were talking about you know how we can move to plastic bags forever and now we need more plastic yeah. than we know what to do with to make all the PPE and um, keep surfaces um, sterile and you know all of that stuff um, and the fact yeah. that it could be so easily dispensed with very quickly in an emergency I think tells you that it wasn't really a climate emergency to begin with. Madeline everything you say is really interesting and I would love to continue this conversation forever um, but my pain is, is now telling me that I can't do any more. Um, and um, so thank you so much for being on the podcast. And will you please will you come back soon? I would and love. We'll talk more. I would love that. And I do hope you feel better soon. Oh, I will. I will do. Um, thank you. Um, and don't forget, um, lovely listeners, do support me on Subscribestar and Patreon and you get early access and you make my life better, which has got to be a good thing, hasn't it? Thanks, Mads. Bye-bye. Thank you.